At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. starts right now live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Steve Grosso, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, just say yes. Pot stocks ripping higher again today, and the chart master says this is just the beginning of the cannabis craze. He will tell us the names to take your portfolio higher. Plus, NFL kicking off its opening weekend, but while controversy around the league continues, the ratings weren't as bad as you might think. We will explain, but first we start off with breaking news. Tesla rebounding today, but tech guru Gene Munster coming out with a new note just now, slamming the company and the board, calling for a complete overhaul of the board to keep the electric vehicle maker afloat. We should note that Gene has been a bull on this story, is a fan of Elon Musk, so what is behind this rather bold call? We're going to start the show a little differently, begin with the man himself who made the call, Gene Munster, a Loop Ventures, for more on this. Gene, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Melissa. So you say Elon Musk should probably stay. Musk is Tesla. Tesla is Musk. But something's got to change, and it starts with the board. What kind of overhaul are you talking about? A big overhaul, Melissa. We're thinking that of the nine board members, probably seven of them, six or seven of them, need to go. Tony Gracias, Elon Musk, and maybe uh, James Murdoch can stay, but the rest need to go. And I want to put some definition. As you said, we've been longtime believers in the Tesla story and continue to be believers in their wonderful mission of accelerating the globe's adoption to renewable energy. And I want to just quickly also say is that for investors or traders who are trading the stock, it's a great opportunity to own Tesla because it's all about near term the numbers and profitability of Model 3 production, which will probably be good for the September quarter. But what has changed, and the reason why we're coming out with this op-ed, is that if you look underneath the hood, and we've done that more aggressively in the past two days, we've been alarmed at not only the talent that they've lost, it's been well publicized, 13 executives have left, many of those have gone to competitors, so giving some of Tesla's knowledge over to the competition. But what is even more concerning is what's going on, we believe, on the recruiting front, is some of Elon Musk, some of those tendencies that we see, and we've been uh, around his, his social media presence and his tweeting, some of that also comes out in interview processes. They're looking at recruiting top talent. And their ability to bring in new talent, we think, is going to be foundational for the company over the next several years. So the issue that we have is not about this September or the December quarter, but needs a wholesale change for mm -hmm. the board to really move Elon into a visionary role and build some better directions and controls around him and allow the company to flourish. We have some suggestions about who a new executive chairman may be. But in a nutshell, Melissa, that's what we're proposing. So, so let's say, Gene, because you do say that you believe the numbers for the quarters, for the next couple of quarters, could actually be good, and there are many on Wall Street who, who also believe that. Let's say that happens, that they actually meet all the projections, et cetera, uh, that they are able, if they so choose, to tap the capital markets for more capital uh, in, in the future. Let's say all of that happens. 
Do you think that the pressure abates? I mean, does the problem go away at that point, or do you think that this is something that needs to happen no matter what the stock does from this point on, no matter what the company's ability is to raise capital, no matter how many earnings projections and how many targets they actually hit? It needs to happen. The stock can rebound, call it back to the high 300s, based on just what you described in the near term. But in order for this company to be multiple times bigger, to be a $500 billion company out there, to be one of the leaders about what's going to happen in tech over the next decade, in order for that to happen, there needs to be a fundamental change in Elon's role. About a month ago, we wrote an open letter to Elon, and we're optimistic that uh, people don't change often, but there could be some polishing around how he uh, deals with the public and investors and the media. In fact, I was wrong, is that he is not going to change. And so while they may get through this tight spot in terms of profitability, for the company to reach its full potential, you have to be a magnet for great uh, talent. And the opposite is happening. We're seeing great talent leave. Doug Field leaving Apple was a huge loss. We've talked to people inside of Tesla and heard that his loss was uh, something that is very frustrating for uh, the rank and file. That can't happen. And ultimately, the board needs to take some responsibility and basically resign. Two-thirds of them need to resign to right the ship. And Elon, if in fact he really does, his goal is to prove the doubters wrong, the best thing for him to do is resign the uh, executive chair position and give it to Al Gore, for example. Give it to somebody who can be a visionary, who can uh, draw in great talent and great leadership. Let's say, Gene, Elon is no longer CEO. He takes some sort of a chairman role or whatever you want to call it, but is still connected with the company. Um, you, you outlined a couple of key problems for Tesla, at least immediately, in terms of talent recruitment and retention, and then also his tweeting behavior. You know, separating him from the CEO role will solve maybe the talent retention and recruiting problem because it'll sort of insulate those, those people from Elon. Uh, but in terms of the tweeting behavior, it still opens the company up to the same liability, doesn't it, as they would face as Elon now, today as CEO? We'll still see some of the same uh, nonsense. I don't think it can get much worse than, than what we've, we've already experienced. But at least you can kind of say that that's Elon and that's a visionary and that's part of being an eccentric personality in the Valley. So I think that the, that piece about recruiting, retaining, and recruiting is, is critical for the success of any company, and that's a game that Tesla's losing today, and that's why this is really a, a moment of action for, for Tesla's board. I also need to emphasize something, is that Tesla still needs Elon. And the reason is that he is, what is a visionary? I mean, if you really break it down, a visionary is somebody who, who thinks of big ideas, but also sets the pace. And he just defines a pace of hard work inside that company. And we know that that's true. And we know that there are a lot of people we describe as disciples in the company that really aspire around his work ethic. So I want to be clear, as I think Elon needs to be a part. We do not need another Scully situation in Apple and Steve Jobs left. That's not what we're proposing here. What we're proposing is Elon is in a comfortable, visionary role that can inspire but also leave some, uh, some structure for recruiting and retention. Gene, do you have any insight if they're actually thinking about this prior to your, your op-ed or thinking about it now in the wake of? I, I suspect that they've been not thinking about resigning from the board. I think that the, the board um, doesn't have a backbone. I mean, I, I think that as hard as it is for me to say that as a believer, it's, it's, it's true. So I don't know if they have the self-reflection to, to go through with this plan. They need to do that. 
I think that they're probably thinking more in the context of how can we reel in Elon and not have him behave on social media. That's missing the point. There's a much bigger story here going on. And uh, Who I, I just this hope change that. change uh, then, Gene? I mean, if the board doesn't have a backbone, I, I would imagine that seven of the board members, six of the board members, aren't going to resign on their own for the best interests of the company. How does this change actually happen? Will it have to be uh, a large shareholder that takes the charge here? And, and who might that be? Is there anybody who has, who has that in them, in, that fight in them? I think there are investors out there. I've talked to them uh, more recently, mm -hmm. and their tone has been uh, increasingly uh, more concerned, not surprising. But the, the math of it, Melissa, is a little bit difficult because you need a supermajority. So essentially what happens is that you need about 70 percent of the, the stock to vote in favor. There was a motion to remove Elon recently this summer that failed. Uh, this is before all this stuff over the last couple months. But uh, so the mechanics of a just simple shareholder vote, it's mm -hmm. unlikely to happen. But really for this to happen, it would, uh, and, and this is a tall order, but would really take uh, a mature point of Elon to say, I love this company. The best thing for this company is to have an outside executive chairperson right. uh, run this and for me to do what I love. All right. Gene, thanks so much for sharing this with us. We appreciate it. Gene Munster Thank of you. Loop Ventures. Um, by the way, for more on Gene's bold call for an overhaul of the board at Tesla, you can head over to CNBC.com to check out the entire note. Um, you saw the reaction of the stock today. Could this be the start of a turnaround? And if what Gene outlines happens, would that make you more bullish on the stock, Grasso? I think short term it's going to make you more bullish. I think you would feel that there are things that are going to get better. I think longer term you still have major issues that plague Tesla. But when you look at Tesla's performance year to date, it's only down 8%. So you have to really look at this and say, is the top capped and is the bottom capped and, and I would say the bottom is not capped your risk is still to the downside yeah but the problem they have is they're going to need money at some point in time and if you look at the Tesla bonds they're still continue to be down they haven't rebounded that much so if you have a crisis of confidence at the top then it's going to be harder to convince bond investors to finance this going forward part of the reason why you this company needs Elon Musk is because he is that visionary and people give him that benefit of the doubt they need to bring in some kind of an adult in the room, so to speak. It's very typical in Silicon Valley. Elon can be Elon. He can be the visionary. I agree 100% with Gene. Yeah, so Brian's talking about $2.7 in debt that's due between now and the end of 2019. Um, so, you know, in the short term, there's serious by 2025. It's about, I think it's close to, 10, uh, close to $9 billion. But that's not the issue. The bottom line is it's returned to fundamentals. So we're a few weeks away from getting preliminary third quarter delivery numbers. And that, to me, is what it's all about here. But I would underline a couple things that Gene said. Gene referred to this as a wonderful mission. Um, and that's great, except for the fact that when investors are investing in companies, um, I think they would rather be investing in a B-plus plan with an A-plus management team rather than investing in an A-plus vision with a B-plus management team. And that's what this feels like, because bottom line is operationally, these guys have not been able to produce. I don't care what you say. And so what we're all investing in is the A-plus idea without the A-plus execution. But imagine if there were an A-plus idea with an A or A-plus management team. And, that, that, that's they, that, and that's but, what Gene is saying. That can change if right. they so choose it. And look it. at the little rally that we had today just because they promoted their so-called fixer within the company, right? That was a tiny little change. Imagine if you brought in somebody. Maybe it's an Al Gore. Maybe it's a former uh, auto executive. Somebody like that. That could be massively game-changing. Then you look at it just from a trading perspective. Just let's play just a game in terms of how it traded over the last couple of months. 
broke 280. We said it's probably going to revisit that April low. That's exactly what happened. And look at the bounce from that low. It held basically at 250 level that it traded back down to in April and has bounced. What does that mean? And in, in my opinion, now at least you have a very definitive risk reward. I don't think it's going to retest those levels anytime soon to the downside. And I think there's a chance it sort of trends higher in the wake of all this news we're hearing. So at least you know what you're trading against now for the first time maybe in a long time. The, the problem is with that downside is that if we do break that level, you know the same chart, we go down to $180. If this thing breaks now, if we break the most recent low that we hit, we go to 244 right. and then and below then that, that. But we've held it's 2016. We haven't touched 244. No. To, Since the first time it we hit did, 244, we did hold even with all this stuff thrown at 250 it. 250-ish, 252. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if now you get these little baby pops that we're talking about and you make a series of lower highs, then the real story is broken. And that fear-mongering of everyone talking about Tesla below 200, that's really a potential. All right, coming up, check out shares of one of the hottest IPOs this year, Sonos, tanking after its first earnings report as a publicly traded company. We'll tell you what Wall Street is saying about the stock. Plus, it's been 10 years since the financial crisis, and a top Wall Street strategist says there is one simple investment strategy to avoid the next one. She will be here. And later, pop stocks are blazing, and even the the chart master can't say no to these names. He will explain why he thinks they're heading higher and the name in particular that he really likes. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Sonos getting crushed in the after hours following its first earnings report as a public company. Seema Modi's in the newsroom with the details. Hey, Seema. Hey, Melissa. That's right. Following today's disappointing report, some Wall Street analysts are forecasting a drop in shares of Sonos. Brent Hill at Jeffrey says given that the stock has had a big run-up, up today alone uh, 13%, he expects a small pullback, though Jeffrey still thinks Sonos can carry its strong brand to untapped markets like Japan, which is currently the second largest streaming market. And while Sonos has focused exclusively on the home, analysts there say moving into untapped categories like commercial and portable would also be favorable for the stock. But Sonos will have to move fast as tech giants Amazon, Google and Apple work on their own smart speaker devices. Shares of Sonos, which have been on a tear since going public, currently down about 15% here in extended trade. Melissa, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Um, despite the move in Sonos, recent tech IPOs have been on fire over the last year. As of today's close, Roku up nearly 400% since it went public last September. Stitch Fix, another winner of triple digits. Spotify, Sonos, Dropbox all up around 30% since they went public. We should know uh, that, note that Spotify went public via direct listening. So um, the percent change 
might be thrown into question in terms of how we calculated this. But is this move in Sonos a warning sign for the rest of these high-flying stocks here? Well, it, what, it, what it's a sign of is that these stocks that are, first of all, we're talking about market caps that are nowhere near the size of some of the big boys out there. Sonos, is, I think, is a, about a $1.8 billion market cap. Uh, the move we've seen, there's a lot of stock-related compensation that comes out after the first quarter. That's something that weighs heavy on them. And the expectations and the growth. And meanwhile, these guys have EBITDA down about 40% year over year. So, um, you know, there's, there's some reasons why investors get very caught up in the concept, a lot of these names were pushed out really in the peak of the NASDAQ, and the whole NASDAQ is pulled back. It, does this in, impute the rest of the sector? Absolutely not. Yeah, I agree. There's no way. I mean, look at what Sonos did, right? I mean, it was already up 13%. So we're just giving back a little bit of it. This is all Sonos-specific, in my view, and it's all about the expectations. The expectations were just too high for this particular company, so now you're getting that pullback. I think around $18, it starts to get a little interesting. Any of these look interesting to you? Yeah, Roku does. I mean, you know, I don't think it's a cautionary tale. Go back and look. I think Roku IPO'd in the fall of last year-ish, uh, you know, September, I think, 2017. Stock went from basically 30 to 50, almost gave the entire thing back until it got its footing. Now you see the stock's almost $70 a share. So a lot of these companies are going to have tough sledding in the beginning until they find their footing. I think the same thing's going to happen to Sonos. So there are a lot of reasons to be bearish the market and tech. I don't think this is one of them. And you can make the case that Roku has probably the biggest and best user base. They're in 20, 25 percent of all TVs. They have a real use. Where Spotify, you're a music lover. Hmm. Uh, I don't know about Sonos. Sonos, to me, I love the product. But when you, I don't have the speaker, I have it throughout my house. I don't know how much penetration you're going to get. I think it's more of an Alexa dominated world or a Google with a connected home there. People love the Alexa with the smart life, I'm told. I've heard. Yeah, I don't want anything to do with don't that, but I'm told. When you're doing some, yeah. you know. Uh -oh. Well, right, it's a listening device. Well, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, people have gotten in trouble. I'm not just, really yeah. sure what Tim Be is careful talking of Alexa. About. Mathematics, maybe. Sonos, you can't have a Sonos speaker with Alexa in it. You can't. Yes. yes BK's yeah. never going to have one of those. Yeah. Because it's a Apparently, government Tim listening device. He'll be very careful what it does around it. It works reverse, though, too. You could have an Alexa with the Sonos enabled. Right. Oh, okay. The more mm. you know. You know, I have a Spotify have, playlist, Mel. I know. It's like it's, 500 it, songs. It's not a playlist, guy. It's just a library. It's an anthology. <laughs> Still ahead. It's been a decade since the financial crisis. We've got a top Wall Street strategist who says she knows how to avoid the next one. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. This is your portfolio. And this is your portfolio on pot stocks. And the Chartmaster says the group is still looking hot, and he'll give you the name on his radar. Plus, NFL ratings continue to get sacked, and it could spell trouble for a handful of stocks. We'll give you the names when Fast Money returns. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks are lit, and they're not showing any signs of cooling off. Dom Chu's back at headquarters with all the details. Hey, Dom. Well, Melissa, some traders have been cooking when it comes to cannabis these days, and over the course of the last month, the returns have been pretty astronomical. That's really the performance-chasing aspect taking place. Now, many of the U.S.-traded shares of Canadian cannabis companies have seen their values soar, like the depository receipts for Aurora Growth, which is a Vancouver, British Columbia-based medicinal marijuana company. Over the last month, shares are up roughly around 35%. One of the more familiar names in cannabis comes via Canopy Growth, also based north of the border. This company made a lot of waves when it got a massive investment from U.S. beverage alcohol company Constellation Brands. Shares of it up around 85% during that span. Kronos Group is a Canadian investment company that specializes in, yet yeah, you guessed it, marijuana. They've doubled over the course of the last month. And then a recent IPO, Tilray, is up around 230%. Now, it went public back on July 19th at $17 a share. It's now in the mid-80s after getting as high as over $97 just last week. No doubt cannabis companies are hot right now, but those big gains in such a short amount of time have stoked some skepticism. And there are some worries that without a new round of catalyst, Melissa, there could be a deeper pullback that even still keeps that shorter and medium-term uptrend possibly in place. Back over to you guys. All right, Dom, thanks. Dom Chu in the newsroom. Well, our next guest says the hot pot stocks are just going to heat up even more. Chartmaster Carter worth the Cornerstone Macros at the Plasma to break it all down. Hey, Carter. I think that's right. I mean, we're going to look at one or two names, but conceptually, it's still early goings in what should be a global growth phenomenon. And um, we talk about that in a bit, but let's zero in. I wanted to pick a sort of small one. Um, nice name, Organigram. Uh, this is the, uh, the ETF, or, or excuse me, or the ticker if you want to use it in the U.S. It's a Canadian stock. But I wanted to focus on what is the very definition of price-volume correlation. So the important thing is this, is that when you have a heavy volume upthrust, you're basically getting signs of accumulation. And that's what this is all about. So that essentially, right, when the volume spikes, you get a big move in price. Volume spikes associated with big moves in price. And that setup, if we just get rid of all this, right, is a textbook, well-defined tops, and it looks like we're just going to break out again, yet to the high, new highs. Now, on to the next. This is the big name, and, and you all know it, um, but it's the same principle. Essentially, big bouts, heavy volume upthrust, do the lines different way, and then it's a company with heavy volume, which is to say signs of accumulation, insensitivity to price, people buying up regardless of how much. But the key to both of these, they're above their January highs, and that's not the case for the general aggregate. So if you look at this ETF, and this is either the opportunity or the issue. Basically, as an aggregate, pot stocks all peaked in January with the market and have yet to recover back to those levels. But based on, again, this recent heavy volume accumulation as we approach the former high, my thinking here is that we're going to now exceed the high and that you've got quite a good setup for uh, a big breakout. I, I like the theme, but again, you can pick the wrong one. One way to do it is to stick with an aggregate like this. Carter, why don't you come on over? Michelle will bring the chair in. Thank you, Michelle. 
you know, last week, Carter, we were making the comparison um, between crypto and pot yeah, stocks. That seemed absurd to me. Okay, well, let me let me just. Okay. <laughs> what do you really the, think? The, 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 the fundamental reason aside, but, but in terms, but in terms, but in terms of the chart, right? Bitcoin prices in December rose exponentially so, I mean, and on heavy volume, oh, and so oh, right. so I mean, is that similar them, to what we're seeing well, here? To compare an operating business, right, that has ultimately a long-term future growth path that one can analyze in a fundamental way, right, decide what kind of cash flow, what you want to pay for. At some point, that's that's not what a crypto is, right? A crypto is 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 analogous to gold in the sense that it's it's a, something that one can speculate on, but you cannot assign any quote. You can't. There's not. Uh, you know. There 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 there's no there's no management. There's no um, there's no. Um, so you dismiss the chart there, on sure. Bitcoin, even if there's similarities on the surface at well, least. There's always similarities. The, That's the, the price and the volume between Amazon when it was okay. going. Right. There's always similarities between people behave in the market. But I think the key is here that these ultimately. Are, are businesses that whether this one survives or that one is not so much. It's just the beginning of what should be a, a so, big growth. Carter, let me ask you this, though. So people bought Bitcoin at 19000 were hurt because we had this parabolic rise. What should people look for in these stocks technically to say, hey, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be buying sure. at these I new mean, highs? Well, for starters, the, the rise here is nowhere near, of course, as you know, to the move in, in Bitcoin. Yeah. Bitcoin was, was multiples in excess of this. But um, it would be simply this. Individual names not participating, but we we have a little bit of that. But as of now, you've got key names being noise. And let me just put this in the context: we know that great manias happen, and then you work out the excess. This happened in the railroad mania in the 1840s. It happened in the in the South Sea bubble. Meaning, at some point, there were you know how many soft drink companies there were? There were 200 in the United States. Now there are about six. The point is, yes, that we'll work away. We'll get rid of the excess. But is this as a theme enduring for sure? Is it part of this a scarcity in, in terms of the amount of stocks you can invest in? Will the, will the success of the industry lead to sort of the sell-off in the group on a whole? In other words, more and more companies go public. You have more opportunities to invest. Names like Tilray that have been parabolic will sort of get spread out across a broader swath of stocks. Is that possible? I think there's that. And then also there's something else that speaks to the enduring nature of it. Think about what happened with Uber and then all of a sudden big auto manufacturers said, hey, I'll have some of that. Big contributions. I'll invest 500. That's what we're seeing now. We all know the Constellation brands news, and we know uh, the M&A activity. It, it should be in principle early stages. Are you in Organogram right now? Yeah, Tim? I'm yeah. in Organogram. And, okay. and again, there's someone that has an international strategy on valuation, and they're significantly cheaper than some of the big boys up there. Look, what's going on here? What Carter talked about with the volume moves is is, is totally to me the ETF world. There's so much torque attached to these ETF creates that then pushes around three, four, five hundred million dollar companies. I mean, yes, we're seeing Tilroy and Kronos and some of the big boys move around Canopy, but but a lot of this is just the dynamics of getting more liquidity and how it comes into a sector. The comparison is, is only about these are new asset classes and they're right. under-invested asset classes. Let me classes ask the question little... of you. As an investor in the space, does it matter to you where that trading volume comes from? Does it matter if the trading volume is mostly fueled by retail versus institutional money? Yes, it does, but, but and, and to be clear, it's a lot easier for institutional investors to invest in this market, and in fact, they are coming in a lot faster. Um, but we often refer to, I've seen this in emerging markets, you see this in developing markets that are less liquid. You see the, the ETFization of your underlying market, and if you don't know how your stocks trade, you're dead. So bottom line here is you're seeing things get lifted up, but again, 
the, the fundamentals here to me are about strategics coming in, and I would say only one-third of this is about a wreck marijuana market. This is all about global cannabis. I, I hear you on the one-third, and I still believe that that October 17th, that wreck marijuana date for Canada is, is a catalyst, along with the M&A opportunities. But I also believe you're going to see a major player, and I, I haven't heard Estee Lauder buy into one of these yet. You, I think you're going to see that well, for skin care. Well, well, wellness, skincare. wellness is, you know, again, if you believe in this story, you believe in global dynamics of a consumer product story, of wellness and of pharma. The, the rec story is great, but that's not a reason to have valuations where they are. And Canadian or U.S. market alone is not a reason to have valuations where they are. This is you know, imputing a global and an international valuation to all these companies. I presume you bring us cannabis charts not only because we are interested in it here on FAST, but also because you have institutions increasingly asking you for well, these for sure, charts. just last week, I mean, uh, we ourselves had a conference, and that was a subject uh, matter, but Barclays had the Consumer Staples Global Conference uh, three days last week. Right. Constellation Brands chairman's on there talking about it. I mean, this is, it's, uh, it's new, but it's, um, it's not nothing. You know? All right. Mm -hmm. Carter, thank you. Carter Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Still ahead, transports trucking to a new high today, soaring 2% as a group signaling the all clear for stocks. The traders will weigh in. Plus, it's been 10 years since the financial crisis took down the markets, but top Bank of America strategist Savita Subramanian says there's a new way of investing that could help you avoid the next crash. She will be here. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Transport's hitting a record high. Check out some of the names trucking along in the last month. United Airlines, J.B. Hunt, Union Pacific, and FedEx all with solid gains. So we thought it'd be a perfect time to play a little game that we are calling Truck It or Chuck It. Careful. Uh, wait. Careful. Truck It or Chuck It. Okay, here's how this will work. Let's use United Airlines as an example. Uh -huh. If you'd buy it, you say truck it. Mm. And you'll hear and see this. Or mm. if you sell it, you say, chuck it, and you'll hear and see that. Get it? And it's not All even a clear? truck, which... All right. No, but it's... So, can I... Just, what? I know we're, we're, we're... It would seem if we're doing an airline, it should be boarded. Boarded. Right. You can't change it for every dude. single... Whatever. We're going to start. Oh, I got it. Truck it or, or chuck it. it. Sometimes not, the cards okay. ain't worth a dime. If you don't lay them down. I, Go ahead, I, I don't know what that means. All right, United <laughs> Airlines, truck it or chuck hey, it? You know how we feel. Truck it, truck it means I want to continue to hold this stock. So I'm going to say truck it, Mel. And you, again, you got to be very careful. Diction is important in this game, folks. Just Particularly this game. Extraordinarily important. <laughs> On valuation compelling, we said that a while ago. We said that despite all the ills they had over the last year mm -hmm. on valuation is a very compelling story. They're only basically three major airlines. You have nowhere to go. August traffic for UAL was up 7.8%. These numbers continue to improve. Nine times forward earnings with ridiculous EPS growth. So despite the move higher, I say you got to stay with it. Board it. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> you know, even though it's a plane, truck it. I mean, you know, if you look at these airlines, these valuations are totally supportive. I think the airlines people... Uh, shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, I think United is well run. They've had a terrible series of public relations, but guess what? The company's doing very well on the playing field. I'm tired of your criticism, so we're going to move <laughs> to a stock which will actually fit Truck It or uh, Chuck It. And oh. that would be J.B. Hunt, Grasso, Truck It or Chuck It. So this is a little complicated. I, I, I like the story, but I'm going to say Chuck It. 
chuck it. Okay. It's up 10% year to date. You have rising volumes. You have rising rates. I do believe if you're bullish on the overall market, you could be bullish on the trucking sector, on the transport sector. But I think they overreached just a bit here. I think they all rallied. The whole space rallied on the storm. And I think that could be sold short term. I think there's more to this story. So instead of shucking it, I want to truck it on this one. There's and no, that's not oh, shucking. What? There's no shuck. Not like oh, an shuck. oyster. Yeah, you're shucking and throw it away. Well, I truck anyway. it anyway. The bottom line is the U.S. economy is doing quite well. As long as we have a stable dollar, U.S. economy is doing quite well. People are going to want to invest in here. If we get that year-end melt-up, this could be one of the beneficiaries. All right, BK, let's try this again. Okay. <laughs> shuck it. Union Pacific, oh. truck it or chuck it. Well, it's not a trucking company, but you still truck it, okay? You still truck it for the exact same reasons I just mentioned, right? This, again, is a domestic play here, just like the trucking companies. That's where you want to be at this point in time. You don't have to worry about the international problems. You don't have to worry about uh, connections on the international for airlines. It's the U.S. That's why I want to That's be. actually a great point because you, they, they also do have their effective tax rates coming in pretty, pretty large. Uh, J.B. Hunt came in from 37% to 26%, mm. domestically facing. You don't have to deal with the trade issues, so I would truck it, truck it. on, on truck his it as well. well. Right. All right, um, last but not least, Tim, this one's for you. FedEx, truck it or chuck it? Yeah, I would truck that like the doodah man once told me, <laughs> got to play your hand. Now, look, like the FedEx what? continues <laughs> to execute. Uh, the one concern here is you're actually seeing some European softness, but again, the TNT acquisition, very accretive EPS. Uh, domestic story <laughs> continues to truck along. FedEx has is, is been a stock to hold through volatile periods in this market. It's so well run. And, and if the economy is doing what it's doing, this is a stock to own. Was he making reference to the Grateful, the Grateful Dead, Dead song? Dead. Uh, like I, I, the Grateful oh, Dead truck which I'm not really a fan of, although you, I'm sure. I got 100 shows under my belt, so, you know. Still ahead. Yeah. Want to avoid the next market Good crash? Good harmonies there, Mel. Well, <laughs> top Bank of America strategist Savita Subramanian says she's found a way of investing that could help you dodge the next big downturn. She'll be here. Plus, the Sunday night football Bears-Packers game disappointing in the ratings as the season kicks off. We'll tell you which stocks could get hit the most from the league's declining viewership. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been 10 years since the financial crisis took down the markets, changing the world and the way we trade ever since. For more, let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hi, Bob. Hello, Melissa. I had a front row seat here at the New York Stock Exchange to all this. Ten years after the Lehman bankruptcy and the height of the financial crisis, the stock market's a very different creature than it was back in 2008. Here's a few ways the crisis profoundly changed stock trading. First, the IPO market shrank dramatically. The drop in the markets and the regulatory rules created under Dodd-Frank made it tougher for companies to go public. Excessively low rates also made it easier for private equity to raise capital and to keep companies private. That's number one. Second, there are far fewer publicly traded companies now than there was even 10 years ago. Fewer IPOs, number one, more mergers and acquisition, number two, and more companies just going out of business have led to a big drop in the number of public companies. The number of publicly listed stocks fell dramatically after the dot-com bust. That happened first from roughly 7,000 in 1998 to about 5,000 in 2004. But then it dropped again after the financial crisis. Today, the Wilshire 5,000, which is supposedly a basket of the 5,000 largest stocks in the U.S., has only about 3,400 stocks in it. Think about that. 
That's less than half the number there were in 1998. Third issue was the death of volatility. I know I'm being a little dramatic, but central banks helped create the greatest trade of the post-crisis era, go long equities and short volatility. Keeping rates excessively low for long periods of time helped create abnormally low volatility, punctuated by short bursts of utter panic. Fourth, and I think most important, was the crisis sped up the transition toward indexing and the rise of exchange-traded funds. Now, the ETF trend started pre-2008, but it fit the investing post-crisis psychology very well. A lot of investors came to believe that by not taking individual stock risk and just using exchange-traded funds, they might find a way to reduce their risk. Well, maybe or maybe not. Either way, we know the ETF trend started pre-2008, but it accelerated after the crisis. Oh, and by the way, quick programming note, be sure to tune in for CNBC's special documentary, Crisis on Wall Street, the week that shook the world. That's premiering Wednesday, 10 p.m. Eastern time. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you. Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. So 10 years after the crisis, we've got a booming economy. We're in the longest bull market streak ever, but could another crash happen? And Bob had mentioned the greatest trade that was ever put on, and we're exiting that trade with the Fed now raising interest rates. So could we see another crisis? What do you think, Rasa? So you can see another crisis. It very rarely mimics or mirrors the same crisis that you had. What, what caused that crisis, and in, in we all know way too much about it, was the leverage. I don't think you're ever going to get back to 30 to 1. So no, not the same one, maybe a different one, maybe an ETF issue where you don't have the underlyings that are opened or moving well, in the, the right direction. You the, could have it there. The, sorry, but it went from the private to the public balance sheet. So you can make an argument that we have more leverage. <clears throat> um, granted, maybe you have central banks who have more of an ability to unwind this trade. but More but leverage it, in terms of... Look, on, on the, look, public debt to GDP has never been higher. And we're in a position where we're removing every central bank is doing their best. And you think Europe can even do this right now? We may be in a place in the first quarter where we have those issues. But for now, we try. Well, our next guest looks like she wants to get in on the conversation. She's got a brand new note out analyzing how 90 percent of company bankruptcies could have been avoided if corporate America focused more on environmental, social and governance issues. Let's bring in Savita Subramanian, head of U.S. equity strategy at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Always great to see you, Savita. So I know you you look like you wanted to join in on the conversation. I Are you did. worried about debt? I mean, That's as of right now, I mean, we're, we're in a very different now. place. <laughs> but what do you see as a trouble brewing out there? Well, you know, I think the area of excess in, you know, in today's market isn't sitting on corporate balance sheets, not necessarily um, on personal balance sheets. I think it's sitting on government balance sheets. It's, it's you know, Fed balance sheets are now at, what is it, four and a half trillion dollars. Right. Right. And they're planning to retire about one and a half trillion of that over the next four years. How does that end? Well, so we did a bunch of work looking at what happens when the Fed allows debt to roll off of their balance sheets, like quantitative tightening. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that in that environment, large caps outperform small caps, stocks outperform bonds, and value outperforms growth. So this is interesting because we're in an environment where for the most part of the last 30, 40 years now, bonds have done great, growth stocks have done phenomenally well, and anything with credit sensitivity has thrived because the cost of capital has gone down to zero. And I think now we're gonna pay the piper. So my playbook is stick with synthetic cash. Go for U.S. companies with lots of cash sitting on their balance sheets. Go for companies that are quality. I think that's going to be the rule of the game for the next 10, 
20, I don't know how long it takes to remove this massive So basically leverage. adjust your portfolio now for this trade unwinding, the so trade for, that was put and, on the, by the Fed. Exactly. The anticipation of quantitative tightening, which is, that's the elephant in the room. I mean, I don't think that, you know, tech companies that are um, that have thrived on access to free capital are in trouble but tech companies that are throwing off lots of cash are probably going to do okay in that environment let's talk about es and g investing it sounds like it makes a lot of sense have you back tested this i mean what are the numbers here we behind have it? done a lot of work on esg and i'll tell you so esg is this sort of it's not just this feel-good metric like you want to buy companies that are running themselves responsibly, but we found that ESG considerations like good corporate governance would have helped to avoid a lot of the stocks that ultimately went under during the financial crisis. Um, ESG would have helped to avoid a lot of the companies with major environmental trip-ups historically. So I think that it's one of these non-financial metrics that actually seems to forecast financial results. How would this have kept you out of the financials during the financial crisis? So one thing we noticed was that companies um, within the financial sector overall had this real market deterioration in um, employee compensation, board compensation. From 2005 to 2007, there were signs that the sector was starting to see some trouble by looking at these governance metrics. And then lo and behold, in 2007, 2008, we started to see a lot of these, these issues revealed. Um, you know, board diversity, lots of different leaders thinking differently at the top of a company would have avoided a lot of the groupthink that took some of these companies over the edge. So, you know, it's not just this sort of soft, like, oh, you know, it's for tree huggers type of metric. It really could have, guard, could have um, helped you avoid some of the real problem areas is in the equity market. And this really sounds like it's a very company-specific exercise, that it's, it's not very company this sector specific. looks good according to You're these exactly metrics. You're exactly right. It's very, very company-specific. It's really looking at how a company runs itself. Not so much what a company makes, but how they're, they're running themselves, how they're treating their employees, how they're treating their customers, you know, how they're thinking about um, the community. It's an interesting way of looking at companies that's not what we learned in business school, but it actually seems like it has very forward forward-looking uh, forward implications for stocks. Savita, thanks so much. Always good to see you. Thank you. Savita Great Supermanian, to be here. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Um, we take a look at, at some of the management changes that we've observed in the media. I mean, just today, there's the example of CBS. There's right. a past example of, of Wynn, for instance. ESG probably would have kept you out of those companies in terms of board diversity at the very least. Well, I don't know if there was board diversity. I mean, I actually think lack you probably of lack of board diversity, right? right? So it would have <laughs> it would have kept you out in the sense if you thought that. So it makes me think, as Savita's talking, that what about the tech companies now? We have tech companies that are controlled by one shareholder with really no board diversity. We had Gene Munster come on top of the show talk about the board at Tesla being a problem. To me, if I look back and say, what do we what do we learn from ESG? This this back testing they've done. You got to watch out for the tech companies. All right. Well, one way to protect against some potential market crashes turn to the options market let's get to Mike Co in San Francisco to break down uh, the trade for us Mike yeah so obviously we have an interesting situation here the market is at or very close to its all-time highs and the cost of options is actually although not as cheap as it has been pretty close to it it's still at a very low level VIX trading just about 14 is below the historical average and the thing is that if you're trying to get some crash protection for your portfolio you want to make it as simple as you can. And so I think one way you can do that 
You can look at SPY as a proxy for your equity risk, SPY, the ETF, and look out to December. I was looking at these today. You could buy the 276 puts. Those were trading for about $4.5. So that represents about 1.6% of where the SPY ETF was trading at the end of the day. And the idea here, when you keep it simple, is that if the market does drop, you can either sell those puts or perhaps spread them, sell another put against them. The idea here is keep it simple. Keep it inexpensive because, of course, if you spend too much on your hedges, you're going to degrade the performance of your equity returns too much to make it worth doing. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Cohen, San Francisco. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the Bears-Packers game disappointing in the ratings last night. Is this just the start of another tough year for NFL viewership? We've got the details. We're live at the NASDAQ in a rainy New York City. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Football season is back, and ratings are also back in the spotlight. Let's get to Eric Chami back at headquarters for the details. Hey, Eric. Hey, that's right, Melissa. Ratings for yesterday's NFL games on first glance appear to be turning in the right direction for the league. According to the latest reports, early indications on Sunday viewership was generally up compared to the first Sunday last year. The Fox regional games were up 5%. The Fox national game was up 1%. The CBS single header game was up 23%. Only NBC's Sunday night football game was down 9% compared to last year. But many analysts I spoke with today suggest the first half injury to Aaron Rodgers and the big lead the Bears built in the first half may have caused people to tune out. They would have missed Rodgers' dramatic second half return and that three touchdown comeback. Sunday's strength is an offset from Thursday's opening night weakness down to a nine-year low. That's a fact President Trump tweeted about over the weekend. The national anthem controversy appears to be quieting down as only two players kneeled with just a handful of other players either raising a fist or staying in the locker room. But remember, it's important not to read too much detail into these first week ratings because so much of it is matchup dependent. After a few weeks, we'll be able to better know where the trend line is going. So let's just watch this over the next few weeks. Melissa, back to you. All right, Eric, thanks. Eric Chemi back in the newsroom. What company is watching this most closely? Who has the most on the line? I think, well, in my opinion, Disney's got to watch it, absolutely, in terms of ESPN. But, you know, the CBS numbers were up huge, 23%. A lot of that had to do with the fact that the Browns actually had a shot to win a game for the first time in a year and a half. I think a lot of people tuned into that. But, you know, whether ratings go up or down, I think the NFL's probably leveled off. And I think with gambling coming into play, it's going to help these companies longer term. I actually think Twitter's one to watch on this, right? I mean, they already have the partnership. They're talking, what is Twitter good with, right? Twitter's great with live sports. They always do well. They do well during the World Cup. They do well World World Series. They do great in football. So I think if you start to see trends of people watching more football, that actually could be positive for Twitter. Look, I think of the, of the major sports, it does seem that the NFL right now is kind of more front and center in terms of, you know, what's going on with their TV contracts, what are they worth. But this is happening across sports, and we talk about this all the time on the show, how sports are being consumed, the interactivity that we've talked about with gaming and gambling. I think the media companies have multi-levers to pull for the first time, and I actually think that they're probably undervaluing their sports relationship. I think it would have to be all the media companies then looking for the NFL to sort of guide them and lead them where the next shoe is going to drop. So if you start to see NFL ratings start to bounce, a lot of these media companies probably could be buys off of that. All right, up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Timothy, 
Nice to have Sabita on. She talked about these big multinationals that are defensive. McDonald's is one of those companies. And again, you're at the bottom end of a range where you've moved up through Steve Easterbrook making things happen. I like McDonald's. Brian. Well, for me, it's uh, more less the multinationals, more the nationals. So IWM, you want to buy the Russell closer to the U.S. Steven. Last week, the whole casino space was under pressure. Win in particular. It's down 20% year to date. You're starting to see the street protect it. Looking forward, I don't have a position yet, but I am looking at it. Win. Key. You know, that new game we played could be extraordinarily truck dangerous. Truck it or chuck it? Truck it or chuck it. If you don't enunciate, it could Diction. be a problem. Remember, we talked about that. But it got me thinking. BK Union Pacific mm -hmm. in the rails, Trinity Industries comes out TRN. <laughs> You're trucking it. Mm -hmm. All right. That does it for us. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.